So, if you have been with us for the last couple months, you know that we've been walking together as a church through the book of Exodus. We've taken a couple breaks over the course of that time, and we'll be taking another break in the coming, the coming weeks as we tackle the Apostles' Creed. But for the last month or so, in particular, we've been looking at the plagues of the Exodus. Now, if you're like me, you might have grown up on some of the retellings of this story, things like Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, or things like The Prince of Egypt, which was this Steven Spielberg movie. And, and I think as far as retellings of the Exodus go, they're both pretty good, as opposed to the more recent movie that's absolute garbage. Um, they're fairly faithful and imaginative and helpful. But what's easy to misunderstand when you grow up watching movies about the Exodus as opposed to reading the story of the Exodus is that you might come away with this idea that the plagues are something like God showing off, that, that they're the equivalent of like a, a divine fireworks display. And it's certainly true that God is showing his power through the plagues. But over the last couple of weeks, what I hope you've gathered is that behind each of these plagues is a direct assault on a God that was worshiped in Egypt. That's where we got the name for this series, Against All Gods. The plagues are more than just Yahweh showing off, but it's the one true God proving that the idols of Egypt are impotent and powerless. And so the Egyptians worship the God of the Nile and the one true God turns the Nile to blood. The Egyptians worship the gods of health and the one true God strikes them with boils that they can't get rid of. They worship the cattle god, and Yahweh strikes down their livestock. They worship the God of the sun, and in the plague that we didn't get to spend a lot of time with last week, God turns out the lights. He casts darkness over Egypt. The text of Exodus actually says it was a darkness that could be felt over and against the God of the sun. And that's an incredibly important thing for God to do. If you're sort of just thinking about the story of the nation of Israel, the book of Genesis ends with them in Egypt and Exodus picks up some 400 years later. And they've been slaves for several hundred of those 400 years. In the mind of the Jewish people who've been living under the oppressive Egyptian regime, the reason why they're still slaves is because the Egyptian gods are stronger than theirs. The reason why they're still slaves is because their God can't defeat the gods of Egypt. And so God, in his mercy, holds the people of Israel in Egypt and says, I want you to watch as I knock down their gods one by one so that when you leave, you have no excuse for returning back to this. I want it to be abundantly clear in your minds that their gods are not stronger than me that their gods are powerless, that their gods cannot give you life. I want it to be beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am the only true God. And sometimes in his mercy, the one true God does that for us, doesn't he? He takes the, the idols that we've invested our hope and our confidence and our security in and he smashes them down. I, I can think of one instance in my life all throughout high school and college, I was fully convinced that when I moved out of my parents' house, that is when life would really start. I was fully convinced that, that once I finally had a place of my own, I would finally feel like an adult. I would finally feel responsible and people would take me seriously. 
And the thing that you find out as you keep getting older is that nobody ever takes you seriously at any point in your life. <laughs> and you never really feel like you've arrived. But towards the end of college, I found an apartment in a place that I wanted to live and in a place that I could afford to live, which was the tricky part. And moved into this apartment so excited about the fact that I had finally stepped into the, the season of life that life was really about. And for about a month, things were great. Until one morning, I, I woke up, um, as I do every morning, or afternoon sometimes, and found myself covered in insects. There were just bugs all over me. It wasn't like different bugs. It was one particular kind of bug, and I thought, well, maybe I left a window open. Maybe, maybe they got like, pulled in through the air conditioning. You know, I came up with all sorts of reasons why I was covered in bugs. And so then I walked into the kitchen, and I found insect wings all over my kitchen counter. And I thought, well, this is a little bit strange. And so I put them in a bag, and I took them to Home Depot. And, um, and I went to the, the sort of bug spray section of Home Depot, and I said, can you tell me what this is? And do you have, like, a spray to take care of this? And he said, you've got termites. There's not a single spray I could sell you that will fix this. And then for the next, like, three months, every time I turned a light on, they all came out of the ceiling and swarmed. And I thought to myself... I wonder if this is what Egypt was like during the plagues of the Exodus. And then I started reading on the internet about all of the damage that termites do to wood homes like my 1920s wood structured apartment. And I said, I'm going to have to move back home with my parents. Like, I noticed all the places that the roof seemed like it was sagging, and every creaking noise from my upstairs neighbor I was convinced was the roof about to cave in. And I remember just walking around my neighborhood because I couldn't turn the lights on at night because they kept coming out of the ceiling and thinking to myself, one, this feels like a plague from Egypt, and two, I wonder if I haven't made this apartment an idol. I wonder if I haven't invested all of my confidence and security and sense of importance in moving out of my parents' house and now God's taking it from me. This happens again and again and again in our own lives. And it's what's happening in Egypt. One by one, Yahweh is confronting the gods of Egypt and dethroning them. And each time, the plagues, the plagues escalate. They get worse. Some scholars have even noted that this is almost a reverse of Genesis 1. It is God decreating Egypt as he created the world in Genesis 1. And so the dust that brought forth living creatures brings forth flies and pestilence. The water that God separated from the land turns into blood. The God who said, let there be light, turns off the lights. And finally, in the last plague, the God who breathes life brings death. And so we come to the final plague let me read our passage for us as we step into it together. It says this in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 1 through to 20. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, 
according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on two of the doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's word. So the passage begins by God saying to Moses and Aaron, What is about to take place is going to reset your calendar. What is about to take place is going to be the beginning of your year. This will now be the first month of the year for you, the month of Nisan. This is your January. And every year from now on for the rest of eternity, you will begin your year by remembering this particular event, this plague, and the fallout from this particular event. Time itself is going to reorient around what I am doing. This happens for us all the time, doesn't it? Maybe not so drastically. Uh, One of my favorite songwriters is a guy named Justin Vernon. He puts music out through um, the name Bon Iver, which means good winter. And Justin Vernon was uh, in a band early on, in, in the early 2000s, and I think it was in like North Carolina or Georgia. They were fairly well known, they were a touring band, they were doing pretty well. They had put out a few records over a couple years. And suddenly, that band broke up. And so this thing that he had invested a lot of his life in fell apart. He was also in a long-term relationship that within a month or two of the band breaking up also fell apart. And so he lost his band and he lost his girlfriend, and then he was diagnosed with a chronic illness. And so in a three-month period, his whole world came unglued, and so he moved to his parents' cabin in the woods of Wisconsin, and he locked himself in the cabin for the winter with nothing but his recording equipment, and he lived there for three months. And what came from that process is his first record that sort of launched him into critical acclaim as he processed the fallout of all of these events happening so closely together. There's a line in that record that has always stuck with me since I heard it back in 2007. He says, everything that happens is from now on. Everything that happens is from now on. As if to say, what has just happened to me has split my life. There is who I was before all of these events and there's who I am after. I now measure my life in light of this season that I've just walked through. And that that, that happens to us in both good ways and bad ways. There's who we were before our marriage and who we are after our marriage. 
There's who we were before the divorce and who we are after the divorce. There's who we were before we had children and after. There's who we were before we lost our child and after. There are events in our life that reorient our sense of time, that split our lives in two, so that everything that happens to us is from now on. And God says to Israel, what is about to happen to you is a from now on moment. So much so that you will remember it every single year for as long as the earth keeps spinning. What's going to happen is that the firstborn in Egypt are going to die. But there's an elaborate set of instructions that God gives to Israel in light of this plague so that they will be preserved from this plague. And that's different from all the others. If you remember back to the beginning of the plagues in Exodus, the beginning of this series, the first couple plagues, everyone gets hit. Israel has to deal with the Nile turning to blood. Israel has to deal with the frogs. Everyone deals with the plagues. Then in these last two weeks, Israel has been spared. Mark talked about this with the bugs, right? That there's almost like a wall keeping them from entering Goshen, the land that the people of God are living in. The the plagues of hail don't fall on the people of Israel. The boils don't strike the people of Israel. But they don't have to do anything to be kept safe. So why is this one different? Why, why all of the elaborate rituals with the lamb and the blood on the doorpost and, and the, the burnt offering, why is it so elaborate to keep Israel safe? Why can't they just be safe like with the flies or the boils or the hail? What's different? Here's what's different, I think. It comes in verse 12. God says this, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and execute judgment on the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. In every single other plague, God acts from afar, if you will. Moses stretches out his hand. Moses throws the ashes into the kiln. Or God stretches out his hand, or God sends the storm. But this plague is different. Because rather than acting from afar, God himself is invading Egypt. God himself, in the fullness of his presence, is entering in some unique way into Egypt. This is an invasion. The last plague is God. This is him stepping down into the land. And here's what we know. If you read a little bit later into the book of Exodus, Moses is on Mount Sinai. And we'll get to this, but he's on Mount Sinai with God and he's hiding in the cleft of a rock as God speaks to him. And he asks God, can can you show me your glory? Would you let me see your face? And God's response is, you can't because it will kill you. My presence will kill you. And this is radically different from what you see in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, Adam and Eve walk with God in the Garden of Eden and they're fine but something has changed after Eden. Something has changed about us as human beings. Something has ruptured in our relationship with God. Sin has corrupted us in such a way that we cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and live. God's presence is death for sinful people. And Israel is every bit as sinful as Egypt. Egypt is just as guilty as Israel. Nobody stands in the presence of a holy God. 
no sinful son of Adam or daughter of Eve, this side of Eden can survive the presence of God. That's why Israel's not safe. Israel's not safe because they are sinful just like everyone and everything else in Egypt. The final plague is God's holiness. I wonder if you've considered the holiness of God for a moment. We rightly talk about God's love. We're told that God is love in John's gospel. We rightly talk about God's mercy because God is indeed merciful. But the only attribute of God in the Bible that is elevated threefold is his holiness. The angels do not cry out before the throne, loving, loving, loving is the Lord God Almighty. They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that holiness is more than sinful people can bear. Israel can't bear it either. And so God provides a way out for them. He tells Moses and Aaron, this month shall be the first month for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month that every man should take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. Your lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel will kill their lambs at twilight. This is the escape hatch. This is how Israel can withstand the presence of God in the final plague. Man, if it's your first time at church, I'm sure you're super freaked out right now. (laughs) If we're being honest, this, this passage is a little bit uncomfortable. It feels strange, it feels foreign. We, we kind of go, what, what on earth is going on here? But every bit of God's instruction is significant. So let's sort of unpack what God says. He says, on the 10th day of the month, take a lamb, a lamb without spot or blemish, a perfect lamb, and bring it into your home until the 14th day of the month. That's not an insignificant action. Something unique happens in relationships when an animal is brought into our home as opposed to living in our backyard. A couple years ago, my wife's family found a dog in their neighborhood. It was sort of wandering around. It was, looked like it had gotten out of its owner's house and had been wandering for quite a long time. So its hair was messy, it was dirty, it looked a little bit malnourished, and so they felt bad for it, and they brought the dog in, and they cleaned it up, and they took it to the vet to make sure it was okay, and they, they fed it, and they put up flyers trying to find the owner, and, and they never got anything back. And so over the course of about a week or two, they kind of just settled on, well, I guess this is our dog. Now that's saying something if my wife liked this dog, because she is a cat person through and through, as are all God-fearing people. <laughs> I've just lost half of the room. <laughs> um, it's saying something that she, that she loved this dog. And so they, they took the dog for a walk one day, having accepted this is our dog. This is one of us. This dog is a Maldonado now. And somebody stopped, stopped them as they were walking the dog and said, hey, you've got my dog. And devastation ensued. Because they knew, well, it's, I guess it's not our dog, and if this is really this guy's dog, we need to give it back. But they were devastated by that. Why? Because it had been brought into their home. 
It had lived among them. It had become one of them. In some strange, unique way, it had become a part of their family. I've done a lot of weddings lately, and there's this increasing trend where people use their dogs as like the flower girl. Notice they never do that with the ring bearer. And, and maybe that's a little bit strange, or, or maybe that's funny, or maybe that's cute, but it, but it highlights something, that when we bring an animal into our home, it becomes one of us in some strange way. It's why people are devastated when they have to put their pets down. And God tells the people of Israel, take this lamb into your home for four days. And then at the end of that, kill it. So what's going on here. Well, he says, once you've killed it, spread the blood across the doorpost. Again, if you saw your neighbor spreading blood across a doorpost, I would encourage you to call the cops. <laughs> but there is something significant here. That movie I mentioned, The Prince of Egypt, came out, I think, in the late 90s, early 2000s. It was directed by Steven Spielberg. And as the, the script was going through revisions, he hired religious leaders from each tradition that holds the Exodus story as sacred. So he hired a rabbi, he hired a Roman Catholic priest, he hired a Protestant pastor, and he asked them to review the script and tell him if they felt like it was faithful to what they believed about the Exodus story. And in the original Prince of Egypt script, as God is speaking to Moses and Aaron, what he says to them in this particular section is, when I see the mark on the door, I will pass over. And all of the advisors from all these different traditions, they all came back to Steven Spielberg, which sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? A rabbi, a priest, and a, a pastor go to Steven Spielberg. They all went back to him and they said, you have to change this. You have to change it back to blood. I know this is a kid's movie, but you, you short-circuit the story. It is not any mark on the door that causes God to spare Israel. It is the blood. It is the blood on the doorpost that causes God to pass over Israel. Because in scripture, blood serves as what linguists call a synecdoche, which is where one piece of an object is used to refer to the whole of an object or represent the whole of an object. So the Super Bowl just happened a few weeks ago. And I'm sure if you're a, a sporting person, which I'm obviously not, you might say something like, Kansas City won the Super Bowl. And even as somebody who is totally ignorant of sports, I know full well that the entire population of Kansas City was not at the Super Bowl or on the field. There was a small representative number, and yet that representative number represents the whole city. In the same way that if you, if you buy a car and you say to your friend, check out my wheels, and they, they get down on their knees and they look at the wheels, you'll be disappointed, right? Because you use that phrase, check out my wheels, to refer to the whole car. That piece of that object represents the whole of the object. Those people from Kansas City represent the whole of Kansas City. Scripture says this, the life of an animal is in its blood. Blood symbolizes life. It's not that the lambs just bled. It's that they died. The blood on the doorpost is symbolic the blood on the doorpost is Israel's way of saying to God, someone in this house has already died. Someone in this home has already passed. The reason why the, the judgment of God passes over the houses of Israel on the night of the Exodus is because someone in that home has suffered the penalty of death on their behalf. 
That's why they had to bring it into their home because it had to become one of them. There is a corpse in every single house in Egypt on the night of the Passover. For the Egyptians, it is the firstborn of their livestock and their families. For the Israelites, it is the lamb who entered into their home, became one of them, and died in their place. And it would be easy at this point for Israel to boast and, and, and become puffed up and proud, right? Because they're the ones that raised the lamb and they're the ones that gathered the hay. The Egyptians certainly aren't helping them with that and they're the ones that watered the troughs. But think back to all the plagues. At every single point where livestock is involved, God spares Israel. He doesn't strike their livestock. He prevents the hail from destroying their livestock. Israel is spared at every single point where these lambs might be in jeopardy so that the only reason there are lambs in Israel on the night of the Passover is because God provided them. Israel has nothing to boast about. God has provided the lamb to take away their sin and bear the wrath that they deserve. And this is the event that God tells Israel to remember at the beginning of every year throughout all of eternity. This is the event that informs their identity. For 2,000 years, Israel keeps it. They rehearse it. They retell it. They imprint it onto their very souls. Why? Because Baalife, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Scottish theologian T.F. Torrance puts it like this. With elaborate religious ritual and carefully framed laws through rivers of blood from millions of animal sacrifices, God taught the Jews through centuries and centuries of existence yoked to his word and covenant until the truth was burned into their souls. The meaning of holiness, righteousness, sin, love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, forgiveness, justification, atonement, salvation, the meaning of creation, the kingdom of God, judgment, death, and at last resurrection, he brought them to the very brink of the gospel. And then at last, in the fullness of time, when God had prepared in the heart and soul and religion of Israel a womb for the birth of Jesus, the savior of the world was born. The final plague reveals the pattern of the gospel 2,000 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Because we, like Israel, are enslaved. We are enslaved by our sin and held captive under the power of Satan. And yet our chains are far more tyrannical than the Pharaoh of Exodus. We, like Israel, cannot withstand the presence of a holy God because of our sin. And like Israel, he has provided for us a lamb that will bear our judgment. This is what we celebrate in Christmas. That in the incarnation, in a stable in Bethlehem, the eternal son of God steps down into our human family. He becomes one of us. He becomes like us in every single way. And then he dies in our place on the cross 
bearing the judgment of God that we deserve. This is why John the Baptist, at the beginning of John's gospel, points to Jesus and he says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because God has always been in the business of providing lambs to bear the judgment for his people. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that Christ is our Passover lamb who was slain for us. This is why Jesus dies on the Passover. This is why Jesus takes the Passover meal and he sets it at the heart of his church in the Lord's Supper. God says to Israel in the Passover, remember what I did for you. And Jesus holds out the elements of the Passover meal and says, do this in remembrance of me. Never forget what happened. As he tears the bread in two and says to his disciples, this is my body broken for you, they no doubt thought of the Passover lamb that was broken for Israel's salvation. As he holds up the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. They no doubt think of the blood of the Passover lamb spread across the doorpost of every Jewish house in Egypt. Like that lamb, Jesus dies in our place, bearing our judgment. It is his blood that brings us peace and brings about our exodus out of slavery to sin. Unlike the Passover lambs in Egypt that are burned away by fire in the morning, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He enters into death, but he conquers it. He has died the death that we deserve, but he has been raised so that we too might walk in resurrection life. Every time I preach, I feel like I need to give application. Here's what you do with this. The application is very simple this morning. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're gonna eat, we're gonna drink, and we're gonna remember the Lamb of God who died in our place so that we might go free. So if you're a Christian, if you're walking in repentance, if you're in right standing with your brothers and sisters, we would invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Passover of Jesus with us. Over these next few moments, I'd encourage you to examine your heart, to, to respond in worship as the ushers come forward and distribute the elements, and then I'll come up here at the end of that time and lead us in communion. But these next few moments are yours.